What a privilege it's been to sing of the cross of Christ this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, our hearts echo with that that message that our hearts desire to give you our life and our all. Would you give us the strength through your spirit to live lives of holiness and sanctification and may we ever keep in the forefront of our minds the importance of understanding and applying the cross of Christ. As we pray in the name of Jesus, amen. If you're in first through third grade, you can slip out to our children's church at this time. The rest of us are turning to John chapter 1 as we continue our look through the Gospel of John. John chapter 1. What is man's greatest need? This was a question that NASA sought to answer in their journey many years ago of trying to put a man on the moon. What does man need in its most basic form? We don't have room nor space for everything, so what is man's greatest need? They famously said, getting a man into space is not difficult. The difficult part is getting him back alive. So what is man's greatest need? After much study, they realized that all people must have food, water, air, and shelter to survive. If any one of these basic needs is not met, humans can't survive. Therefore, these four basic requirements have been labeled specifically by NASA and now carried on very famously and and probably you could answer those if I asked you what's man's, what man's most basic needs were. Those four things are known as man's greatest need. Several years ago, Ford's, Forbes magazine actually added several more. Sleep. Contrary to popular opinion, human being, a human being, a human, every human being, sorry, needs six to nine hours of sleep on average each night in order to stay healthy. Without sleep, your body will eventually shut down. Some of you are like, I proved that wrong, and then one day you won't, right? (laughs) Sleep. They also mentioned connections with others. We would call that fellowship. Humans require connection and interaction with other people in order to survive. That's why isolation is such an incredibly hard punishment. Forbes also listed something called novelty. We would use that to explain the sense of something to live for. We would say purpose. Doctors will tell you that retirement kills more people than working later in life. Because often in retirement, people lose their need to live, their sense of purpose. Perhaps you're here this morning and you would add to this list. Man's greatest need perhaps would be viewed as happiness or maybe fulfillment, joy, peace, freedom, money, equity, education. Whatever you would put into that list, I'd like to tell you this morning that any of those answers would be woefully inadequate to answer the question, what is man's greatest need? These answers are inadequate because although they do give us an answer for how to prolong man's physical life or how to enhance or make better man's life here on this earth, this answer does nothing to speak to man's spiritual condition. Your life here is but a moment. James says it's but a breath. And when you're young, it seems so long. And then later on in life, the testimony of the elderly is to say, where did life go? That life is but a vapor. It's here, and then it vanishes. But friends, the next life will go on for all of eternity. That's right. And so when we answer this question, what is man's greatest need, that answer must take into account not only this life, but also the life to come. 
even if all of our physical needs are met, and any answer that you would give as to man's need or his greatest need here on this earth is met, eventually that person will die and will enter eternity. So we ask the question again, what is man's greatest need? I'd like to submit to you this morning that man's greatest need is to possess God, to lay hold of God, to enter into a relationship with the creator of the universe. That is your greatest need. And that is the, the, the need that every religion, every false religion seeks to, to accomplish. That, that's the problem that they seek to solve. How do you, as a human being, lay hold of God? How are you reconciled to God? How is a person that is far from God brought near to God? How can you lay hold of, possess, how can you come into a right relationship with God? The answer is is only through Jesus Christ. And Jesus actually communicates this truth to us by drawing a parallel between the necessities of the human condition and himself as the answer. Jesus as the solution to man's greatest need. For instance, he says, I am the bread of life, John 6.35. He says, I am living water. John chapter 4, Jesus said to the woman at the well, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Food, water, Jesus is drawing the parallel to saying you think these are your most basic needs, but you must understand that your greatest need is me, Jesus. He tells us that he is the spirit that breathes life into the soul. He's air, he is the breath. John chapter 3, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He is the shelter that you seek. He's the one who would gather you under his wing for protection. Matthew chapter 23 and verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, that city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. He is the rock of ages cleft for us to provide protection, security. He is the one through whom we find true fellowship. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 3. That which you have seen and heard we proclaim also to you that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed your fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the one who brings true and fulfilling purpose to your life. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Here's your purpose. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. And he continues on in 1 Peter chapter 2 to explain the purpose that we have in Christ. And friends, we could go on and on and on and on. And throughout Scripture, what God does is he ties your most basic necessities of life directly to Jesus and say, yes, those are necessities, but they're not your greatest need. Yes, you need food. And after this service, you will probably partake to a great extent, right? Depending on how long I preach, depends on how much food you eat at lunch, right? How hungry you are. Yes, you need water. Yes, you need protection. You need fellowship. All all of those things, all of those aspects of life are necessities to your life, but they're still not your greatest need. For all of those can be met And you will still find yourself suffering for all of eternity. And so, 
Your greatest need is to lay hold of God. To accept. That's what we mean when we say to accept Christ. It means to embrace him, to lay hold of God. So if laying hold of God is your greatest need, the next most logical question is what? How do I do that? If your greatest need is to eat, then you know how to do that. If your greatest need is to, is to, you know, to quench your thirst, you know how to do that. If your greatest need is shelter, you can find shelter or build shelter. But if your greatest need is to lay hold of God, friend, how do we do that? And the short answer is this. You can't. You can't. Because there's something that is a part of your nature that keeps you far from God. That keeps God far from you. In fact, Scripture goes as far to say that this part of your nature actually makes you an enemy of God. Colossians chapter 1, verse 21, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil Deeds. Ephesians chapter 2, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, or by nature children of wrath. That you, in your original nature, are not only separated from God, far from God, but you're actually an enemy of God, and this part of your nature is called your sin. That you have transgressed God's law, that you have stepped outside of God's boundaries. I had the wonderful privilege of teaching middle school soccer, coaching middle school soccer. A lot of it was teaching. Uh, this past fall for uh, my daughter's team and some others here from church, Ron, there was an outreach and had some unsaved kids in the team. And part of teaching, part of coaching soccer at that age is simply teaching them the very basics like, don't touch the ball with your hands unless you're the goalie, right? And probably out of our, I don't know, eight, ten games, probably half of them, someone at some point would block the ball with their hands and then go, oh, man, I forgot. Sometimes inside the box, which was not a good thing. But there's also another rule, even for the goalie, and that is you can grab a hold of the ball and you can stop the ball with your hands and you can hold the ball with your hands and you can throw the ball and do whatever you want with it with your hands as long as you are inside the box. And on several occasions, the goalie would try to kick the ball as hard as they could and so they would get a running start or, or a walking start, not realizing that they were already at the edge of the box and thus they would step outside the box to kick the ball and the minute that their foot stepped outside the box, the whistle blows, and the referee says what? You have transgressed the laws of soccer. You have stepped outside the boundary. There is a line that is meant to keep the game going that is actually meant for your benefit because if the goalie could go anywhere with the ball, it wouldn't be a fun game. So the line is actually for the flourishing of the game, for the benefit of the game, and you just stepped outside of that. And that's what sin is, is it's stepping outside of God's boundaries. Not boundaries that are set up to make your life worse, but boundaries that are set up for your flourishing and for your care. And yet, Romans 3.23 tells us that every person has sinned. You see, sin isn't just stepping outside of God's boundaries. It's also not keeping God's law. So, so you can think of it this way. Sin is not only not doing wrong, it's also not doing everything right. Every person is a sinner. You were born that way. Every parent knows. You don't have to teach a young child to be selfish. You don't have to teach a young child to be angry. No one has to teach a child on the playground to be cruel or harsh or destructive. We are all born that way. Sin keeps you from God, and rightfully so, because God is holy and righteous and just. And so your greatest need is to lay hold of God, but yet you can't. Because you have a problem, and it's not a problem that's just, you know, I'll just put a band-aid on it. It's a problem that's a part of your nature. 
Every sin that you commit is an act of offense and rebellion against the God who created you. He's holy and righteous and just, and you've earned punishment for your sin. That means that you have to spend your life here on this earth separated from God. That means you will die separated from God, and it means you will spend eternity separated from God, punished for your sin in a terrible place called hell, separated from God's goodness and His grace. And if you're visiting with us this morning, you're probably thinking, where in the world did I come for church, right? Man's greatest need is to lay hold of God. But you can't because of your sin. So this leads you to the next question, and that is, is there any way to fix this problem? It's actually a problem that we all recognize. But where we find the solution differs. So we'll look to Scripture this morning to find that solution. Is there a way for a person to remove their sin from them so they can have access to lay hold of God? Can I remove my sin from me? The answer is no. But someone else can. I submit to you this morning that this is the question that all of the religions of the world seek to answer. How can I find reconciliation with God? And as we look to the answer to that question, your greatest need is to lay hold of God, to be reconciled with God. You can't because of your sin. But the way that you can find reconciliation with God, the answer to that question is found in John chapter 1 and verse 29. John chapter 1 and verse 29. Let's look there together. We've already preached through this passage. We're going back and looking at John 1. In verse 29, where this, this verse reveals to us that man's greatest need is that he would be reconciled to God, and this reconciliation happens through the forgiveness of his sins offered by Jesus Christ through his sacrifice on the cross of Calvary. Your sins can be forgiven through Jesus. John 1.29, the next day John the Baptist saw Jesus coming towards him, and he said, here's our text this morning, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And going through the Gospel of John, section by section, we can't understand the mission of Jesus that we enter into through John's account of the life of Christ without understanding this verse. With this one statement, John the Baptist explains the very core of the Christian message. It's the message of good news. That you and I can be reconciled to God. This is the gospel. And this message can be summed up in three words. Three words, kind of categories. You could call them ideas that John is trying to communicate in verse 29. They're the words sacrifice, the word substitute, and the word savior. These are the three aspects of the gospel that John explains to us in verse 29. We're going to look at each one of them individually and see how John is communicating this. So verse 29, first of all, Jesus as our sacrifice. You could call this Jesus the final lamb. Jesus the final lamb. John says, the lamb of God. Not a lamb sent from God, the final lamb from God. Now this phrase, lamb of God, we may be familiar with in our church circles, in our Christian circles. You've heard it a lot. But this phrase is absolutely unique to the Jewish culture. In fact, so much so that this phrase, Lamb of God, is only seen twice in your New Testament. It's in verse 29, and it's in verse 36. 
we see John saying it again and again. It may have been John's favorite title for Jesus as Jesus was walking around, verse 36, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God, and two disciples heard him say this. On consecutive days, it's as though John the Baptist sees Jesus and his favorite presentation of who God is, the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God. Only used in these two verses in all of your New Testament to refer to Jesus. So we need to ask the question, what did John the Baptist mean by this phrase? We know what it means today. Even John the Apostle, as he penned the words of John the Baptist, knew even to a greater extent the implications of this phrase. We first need to ask the question, what did this phrase mean to John the Baptist? John the Baptist, with this phrase, is making a connection that this man, Jesus, is going to be the one to reinstate the pure relationship between God and his people. It's through this man that our relationship with God will be restored. Now John, in his statement, more than likely, did not have in his mindset the idea that Jesus was going to suffer and die. We know that from uh, Matthew, chapter, I believe it's chapter 17, when John the Baptist actually questions when Jesus is being rejected and he's starting to suffer, John the Baptist calls from prison and he says, are you sure you're the one that, <laughs> are you sure you're Messiah? And, and he asked that because it wasn't going quite like he thought it was going to go. And his life wasn't going quite like he thought it was going to go. And in the intertestamental period, we see the writings in the intertestamental period that are not scripture, but they're Jewish writings, specifically referring back to Jeremiah and Isaiah, this, this concept of the conquering lamb that would come. We see it reflected for us in Revelation chapter 17 and verse 14. They will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them for he is the Lord of lords and the king of kings and those with him are called faithful and chosen. And so this conquering lamb, we see him pictured in heaven with John, with his apocalyptic revelation, he says, I see a lamb as if slain, conquering sin. And so John the apostle is seeing this lamb saying, you're the one who's going to reinstate the, the real relationship between your people and yourself. John the Baptist seeing Jesus as the conquering lamb in Jeremiah and Isaiah. But John the Apostle, when he's writing this, is drawing our attention to the fact that not only is Jesus the conquering lamb, but Jesus is the Passover lamb. I want you to look down in John chapter 2, just a few short verses later. John chapter 2, look down in verse 13. Just a few days later, as John is giving chronological order of what's happening, he says in chapter 2 and verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was at hand. Meaning that when John was baptizing, and Jesus steps forward, and John says, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, as Jesus is continuing his ministry, and John the Baptist is directing people to Jesus, and he says, behold the Lamb of God, there's a direct correlation that the Apostle John wants to draw your attention to, and that is the fact that Jesus is announced, and his ministry is inaugurated during this time for a very specific reason, because it was during the Passover. And so there's a direct line drawn from Jesus to the Passover lamb. You say, Joe, why is this important? Well, in Exodus chapter 12, the Passover was introduced as a reminder to the Israelite nation that they had been pulled out. They had been exited. They'd exited Egypt, hence the name Exodus. Some of you are like, oh, that makes sense. Exodus, they exit Egypt. And God provides a way for them to not experience the wrath of God. Do you remember this? 
They bring a lamb into their home. They live with that lamb, that spotless lamb. They nurture that lamb for two weeks. Then they kill that lamb. They take the blood of the lamb. They place it on the doorpost of the house. And thus, the final plague in Egypt, as the death angel came, as the wrath of God on the nation of Egypt, those who had the blood of the Lamb over them, were preserved from the wrath of God. They were protected from the wrath of God. And that is what is about to be celebrated here at this time. And so Jesus is shown forth as the Lamb who would protect from the wrath of God. Exodus 12 and verse 13, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Many of you know that old hymn, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7, the Apostle Paul draws our attention to the fact that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Christ is the fulfillment of the Passover. That everything in the Passover points to the fact that one day there will be a lamb not provided by man, but provided by God who will fulfill that Passover. And so it's almost as if John the Baptist here is fulfilling the role of Abraham in the story of Abraham and Isaac, where Abraham tells Isaac, if you remember the phrase, Isaac looks at him and says, Dad, we have the wood, we have the fire, but where is the sacrifice? And Abraham looks at his son Isaac and says, God will provide a sacrifice. And it's as though John the Baptist is fulfilling the New Testament role of Abraham and saying, there he is. He's the Lamb of God. He's the Passover sacrifice. And what the Apostle wants you to see is he's writing this in chronological order, is he wants you to draw the line of connection between the fact that just in a few short days, Jesus is going to be walking the streets of Jerusalem as the lambs are being killed. And yet here in front of them is the final Passover sacrifice. That he is the lamb. He is the final lamb. What was a sacrifice in the Old Testament? The sacrifice in the Old Testament was a physical illustration given by God that every person needs something to take their place. That for our sins, we deserve to die, but God allowed this elementary form of uh, of God's revelation, this visual explanation that someone could take an appropriate animal and that animal could die in their place. And Jesus then is revealed as that final sacrifice. And the next word that that this kind of transitions into is not only is he the sacrifice, but he is the substitute. Jesus is the final lamb in the sacrifice. Secondly, Jesus is the mediating lamb. He's the lamb who stands in your place. He's the lamb who stands between you and God. He is your substitute. We see this in the phrase, the Lamb of God. Look down at verse 29 of chapter 1 with me. Behold, the Lamb of God. What's the next phrase? Who takes away sin. Jesus as your substitute. This word, take away, is a very interesting phrase. It's used often of... Uh, in the New Testament, we see, if you remember the story where Jesus heals uh, the leper, right? And the leper no longer needs the bed he's, he's on. In fact, if you remember the story in Mark chapter 2 of uh, the, the leper being let down through the roof, remember that? Jesus is speaking, and his friends uh, hear that Jesus is healing, and so they come, and there's no room in the house, and so they go up, and they pull off, they unroof the roof right over Jesus, and they let the leper down, and Jesus heals him and forgives his sins, and then what does he tell the leper? Take up your bed. This is that same word here. 
It means to pick up. It means to carry. If that was some sort of gurney or something that four people were carrying and letting down, it'd be difficult for one person to carry out, and so perhaps he throws it over his shoulder as he carries out his bed. Fascinatingly, this word is also the word used to explain um, Simon the Cyrene, who when Jesus, after his flogging, was forced to carry the cross up the Via Della Rosa to Golgotha. And if you remember, Christ collapses under the heavy load and someone from the, from the crowd, we know later is Simon, steps in and it says that Simon carried his cross. That Simon was the one who bore the weight of the beam to Calvary. And though Simon could carry the cross, there's only one who could carry your sin. And that's what John wants you to see. Is that this sin that's being referenced here in John 129 was actually placed on the shoulders of Jesus. It doesn't mean to erase. Like somehow God in his, with His magic sin potion, when you come for forgiveness, erases your sin. That your sin's just gone. It doesn't mean that you have to pay for your sin or somehow you have to bear up under. It does not mean that you will have to bear up any sins in eternity if you come for salvation. If you come to Christ, if you lay hold of God. If we read this verse carefully, it says, the Lamb of God carries, bears up under, shoulders the weight of the sin. Not random sin, but very specifically the sin that God placed on the shoulders of Jesus. That He would pay that price. We see this concept reflected in the verses that we read this morning. Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 12. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore, there's that word, you could say he wore, he carried on his shoulders, he bore the sin of many. 1 Peter 2.24 He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For it was on the cross that the scripture tells us that the sins of the world descended on Jesus, on the shoulders of Jesus. And so Jesus carried our sin for us. God doesn't have some magic eraser. No just judge would let a condemned sinner go free. That sin had to be punished. And it's either going to be punished on your shoulders or it's going to be punished on the shoulders of Christ. He died as your perfect substitute so that you could be forgiven of your sins. Your sins had to go somewhere. And this verse tells us that Jesus died not only as the sacrifice for your sins, but as your substitute. It should have been you. But He died instead. The Lamb of God who takes away sins. I'd like you to take your Bible if you can and turn to Hebrews chapter 10 because this chapter is probably the best passage of Scripture that gives what, what I would believe is the most beautiful explanation of what's happening here. Keep your finger in John 1. We're coming back. We're not done with verse 29 yet. But in Hebrews, 
the author of the book of Hebrews, his constant theme is that Jesus is better than, than anything. He's, he constantly makes these, uh, these comparisons. And in Hebrews chapter 10, G, uh, the, the author of Hebrews is making this comparison in this beautiful sermon that Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus, is better than the sacrifices of the Old Testament. We'll begin reading in verse 1, where we're down through verse 10. And with this in mind, I think it will shed uh, perhaps a new light on what the author of Hebrews is doing here. Let's look at verse 1. For since the law has been but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. Remember, what I said is that those sacrifices of those animals were illustrations. They were pictures, visible pictures of what God would do to come. It can never, the middle of verse 1, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect or bring into right relationship with God those who draw near. In other words, it wasn't through the sacrifices, it was through God's mercy and grace. Verse 2, otherwise they would not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers having been cleansed could no longer have any consciousness of sins but in consciousness of sins but in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year for it is impossible by the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins consequently when Christ came into the world he said sacrifices and offerings you have not desired what are the next three words but a body you have prepared for me In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written to me in the scroll of the book. Do you remember? Okay, picture in your mind being a Jew, having offered sacrifices for sins, having offered sacrifices for sins. And and, and the author of Hebrews here is saying, Uh, as he's quoting the Old Testament, in in bulls and goats, you have taken no pleasure. And I want you to imagine, again, we're in John 1, just following the baptism of Christ. What are the words that came from heaven as heaven was rent open and God the Father speaks down? What does he say? You are my beloved son. In you I am well pleased. That the sacrifices that were offered over and over again, God could find no pleasure. But then in the sacrifice of Christ, God is finally appeased. That, that, that sin is atoned for. The payment is made. The payment that either you have to make or Jesus will make as your substitute. Look at verse 8. We'll just read down through verse 10. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified Through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, what are the next three words? Once for all. There is no continual sacrifice of Christ. There is no continual offering of the body and blood of Christ. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross was a sacrifice once for all. We sang it this morning. He said, It is finished. And so our hymn reflects the Scripture. It was finished upon that cross. He was your final substitute, your final sacrifice. The mediating Lamb. He bears our sins on His shoulders. He bears our sins as as He bears our sins as our substitute. And you who were dead, Colossians chapter 2, in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us. What kind of debt did you owe? This is an interesting question. I heard a great illustration. There are two kinds of, of debt that we could owe. 
I want you to imagine with me that you are in line. It's summertime. It's been hot the last couple of weeks, and you decide to go to an ice cream shop. And uh, in front of you is is a a young child who um, has been sent to the ice cream store to get ice cream. And he uh, order he or she orders, you know, a uh, two scoops. Maybe you're at Rocket Science, right down in Napanee, a great ice cream store. And uh, and he said, I'll take two scoops of this flavor, and they mix it all together, and they go to ring up, and the lady says that'll be you know twenty five dollars for two scoops of ice cream, and um, and the child looks at at them, and with a um, just a, a fallen face. Because he only brought, he was going to rocket science, he knew it was going to be expensive, and he only brought 10 bucks for ice cream, right? And, uh, and, it's, and, and it's actually 15 or whatever. And if you have a living, breathing soul in you, right, as a child by themselves looks at that. Now, if it's your child, you go, suck it up, kid, you'll be fine. But if it's someone else's child, if you're a human being, your heart breaks and you pull out your wallet and you say, hey, I'll give you, you know, I'll give you the difference here. Because at that point, the ice cream's been made. Maybe he's already taken a bite of excitement. And he has to pay for it. And he owes a debt. And you pay that debt. It would be a technical term. Maybe it's not the right term. If you're you know, an accountant, forgive me if I get this wrong, maybe that would be called a fiscal debt, right? Something that has to do with money. But friends, it's, it's very different. That situation is very different than if you are walking into rocket science and that same child runs into you running out of rocket science having stolen a bowl of ice cream. It's a very different debt. Because at that point, that, that person no longer owes a debt that can be paid fiscally, they owe a moral debt to society. And that debt means that they stand condemned for wrongdoing. And that's why we have prison terms. Because a judge, rightly or wrongly, will determine what he believes is an accurate representation of the debt to society, the moral debt that is owed by that person. You see the difference? And the debt that is owed by your sin is a moral debt. And Jesus took your place to pay that moral debt. The, the, the scene is often used of a courtroom of someone who's condemned for something and, and, and the, the, a person steps in to say, I'll serve the sentence instead. That's the, the moral substitute that Jesus steps in to pay the sin debt that you owed. And really, the key verse that explains this phrase from John one twenty nine is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And listen very carefully. We're going to go through this phrase by phrase. He him, uh, I'm sorry, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. That's the substitution of Jesus to pay your moral debt. Because either you will be rejected by God or Jesus can be rejected by God. For our sake, it was for the sake of the children of God that Jesus did this. He made him to be sin. God accepted the sacrifice of Christ because Christ on the cross took our sins upon him, actually became our sin. And the reason that he was the only one who could do that is because he knew no sin. No saint can take your place. No other person can take your place. You can't do it on your own. You need a perfect sacrifice. 
And thus Jesus fulfills that role in your place. But don't forget the second half of that verse. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You don't need your debt just taken to zero. You need an infinite amount of righteousness in order to stand before God. And Jesus was your substitute not only for your sin and taking that on him, but he gives you his righteousness. That you have to be perfect like God in order to lay hold of God. And Jesus, the one who not only did nothing wrong, but he did everything right, stands in your place. He takes your sin and he gives you his righteousness so that you might become the righteousness of God in him. It's an amazing transaction. In fact, Spurgeon called it the great transaction. That you give him your sin and he gives you his righteousness. He is your sacrifice and he is your substitute. Thirdly, if we go back to John chapter 1 and verse 29, we see not only is he your sacrifice the final lamb not only is he your substitute the mediating lamb but he is your savior you could say jesus is the rescuing lamb the rescuing lamb the lamb of god who takes away the sin of what of the world this means people With this one statement, your Bible in front of you puts immeasurable value on people. People made in God's image. Jesus has come for those made in His image. I know you love your dog. I love my dog. But Jesus did not come to die to carry away the sins of your pet or your job or your possessions. Jesus came to bear the sins of people and thus placing an immeasurable value and a separateness, a holiness to people, those in God's image. I want you to notice once again in this verse that God, that uh, John, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the leading of God, God, God uses the word world. If you remember from a couple weeks back, John will use this word all the way through his scripture, and he uses it ten different ways, as do we. Because in the morning, in a beautiful sunrise, you might say, I love this world. And later on, to someone you are discipling, or maybe to your children or grandchildren, you will say, don't be like the world. And so just like we use this word in so many different ways, thus John uses the word in so many different ways, as we've already seen back in uh, John chapter 1. How does John use the world? Well, he says God created the world, talking about the physical globe and everything in it. He says, don't be like the world. He says, God loved the world, and et cetera, et cetera, and on and on. So, we always need to ask the question, whenever we see the word world, any more than you want your child to not be like a sunset, we need to ask the question, how is John using this word? That's always the question that we want to ask. How is the author using this word? And it's always good to start out with what we know John is not doing. John is not teaching universalism. In other words, we can be assured that John is not saying here that once Jesus died, all the sins of all the people who had ever lived were paid for on his shoulders in the sense that every single person will now go to heaven and we're universalists, right? We're not Unitarian Universalists who would just say, hey, everybody's good. Aren't you glad you were born after this and not before it? We're all good now. Well, I think we all would recognize, hopefully, 
that that's not what John is saying here. And he uses very specific phrasing. Very specific. Look at verse 29. Takes away the sin. It's a very specific phrasing there. So how is John using this word world? John is using this word to communicate to his Jewish audience that's right there in front of him. That the message of the gospel through Jesus is for more than just Jews. He's saying, I know that up to this point, in order to be a member of God's people, you had to assimilate into the Jewish nation. Remember, he's baptizing just like Gentiles would have to be baptized into the Jewish nation. He doesn't want anybody to be confused. He's not preaching a Jewish gospel, is what he's saying. I am not here referencing the fact that you need to come to Jesus through the Jewish nation, but that God's message is available to the entire world without distinction. That's what that, that's what that word means. And if you read commentaries, you will see that phrase over and over again, the world without distinction, meaning there is no person who is outside of this call to salvation, repent and believe the gospel. That it is a call to all the nations. We see it in Matthew chapter 28. Go to all the world, right? Make disciples of all nations over and over and over again. We see this theme. What does it mean, the world without distinction? Well, the first distinction that they could say, there, the Jews that were sitting there was, well, no, 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 you've been saved, you're Gentile, I'm saved, I'm a Jew, you need to become like me. If you want to summarize the book of Acts, that's it, right there, okay? What's happening? Uh, you've got these people going at it, and the constant message is no, 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 no. There is a wall that has been broken down. And so the message of the gospel is for all people of all nationalities. There is no longer a need to go through the Jewish nation. The world, worldwide, you could say. That all those who come by faith and lay hold of God have their sins paid for through Christ, no matter their nationality. This is a massive message, guys. It's hard to, it's hard to explain to us who are kind of in a multicultural nation. We're in a, a kind of a melting pot, Right? A diversity of nationalities and backgrounds is revealed even in this congregation, and rightfully so, as it will be that way in heaven. But for this, for the nation of Israel, this was like a slap in the face to them. You no longer have a corner on salvation. Secondly, it's without distinction in regards to their depravity, and that's more where we would probably fall short in our thinking today. So listen carefully, friend. What this word world means for you this morning and it means many things but one implication that I'd like to bring to your heart is that you might be here and you struggle to think that the amount of sin that you have committed could really all be paid for in Christ you may say, yeah, it's right for so-and-so because they were born into the church or it's right for so-and-so because they're a really good person and that person's never committed what I've committed but friends, when, when this verse uses this phrase, the world, it's saying every person without any distinction who comes in faith will find their sins atoned for in Christ. No matter how deep your sin, God's grace is deeper. No matter how heavy your burden, God's grace is stronger. And no matter how filthy your soul, God's grace will cleanse you. And it reveals to us that you don't have to clean up your act before you come to Christ. There is, no, there is nothing that you have to do to prepare yourself to come to Jesus. You don't have to clean up your life. You don't have to do penance. You lay hold of Christ, and Christ does all the work. And you say, wait a minute, Pastor Joe, I've been paying attention very carefully, and you said at the beginning, I can't, but now you say that I can. I'm not going to make you wait until John chapter 3, but that's really where 
where Jesus answers this question because that's what's coming up. God says the Holy Spirit works in your heart. There's something called regeneration that happens. The Holy Spirit works in your heart and makes your soul alive to lay hold of Christ. You say, how does that all work? I don't know, but it happens in a moment. Repentance, faith, regeneration, that God breathes life into your soul and you lay hold of God. And friend, if you feel God tugging at your heart, the only response is to lay hold of Christ. Let him take your sin. No matter your depravity, and what you find when you lay hold of Christ is that we are all just sinners seeking a Savior. A phrase that we use often here at Community, if you're new with us, is that there's no show here, friend. We're all beggars seeking bread at the same place. No one here has arrived. No one here has got it figured out. But we have a loving God who points the way to Jesus. In closing, I'd like you to see the very first word. Some of you thought I skipped it. I didn't. We'll just get there last. Behold. With that one word, the beginning of verse 29, John has shifted from communicating information to us to calling for a response. He's saying, look right there. Look to Jesus. Cast your eyes on him. Behold the Lamb of God. There he is. Turn your eyes. Look at him. That's him right there. But you have to look. The old gospel hymn, look and live. But will you live? Look to Jesus and live. I'd like to give you three closing applications briefly. Number one, don't lose the message of the gospel by focusing on the benefits of the gospel. When you share the gospel, don't lose the message of the gospel by focusing on the benefits of the gospel. You say, Pastor Joe, what do you mean by that? Well, it is true that that through Christ you can find true and lasting satisfaction. It is true that through Christ God can help you as you find purpose in your problems. It is true that through Christ you will become a child of God. It is true that through Christ you will escape hell and enter into heaven. All those are true, but those are not the gospel. I mean, who's going to say no when you say, hey, do you want to go to hell or heaven? That's not the gospel, friend. The gospel is that by nature you are a sinner, and by nature Jesus is your Savior. And you have a problem, and God is your only solution. And the only way that you can find the solution to your problem of sin, which will send you to hell for all of eternity, is to look to Jesus. That's the gospel. You have a problem. God is your solution. And so when we share the gospel, when we give the gospel, don't confuse the gospel with the benefits of the gospel. Your responsibility is to turn to Jesus, to lay hold of Jesus, to lay down your heart and your life at the foot of the cross and to say, He is my Lord. He is my God. I'm laying hold of Him and Him alone. And it's through that you find forgiveness from your sins and reconciliation to the Father. Don't confuse the gospel and the benefits of the gospel. When you share the gospel, when you give the gospel, give the gospel. Secondly, and you find more information about that, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. Secondly, since God has paid the price for your sin, let that cause you to hate it more. If your sin truly pinned Christ to the cross, then shouldn't you hate it more? Shouldn't you run from it more? Resolve to live a life of holiness. Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? The King James says, God forbid. May it never be so. By no means the strongest negative given in all of Scripture. Thirdly, since God has paid the price for your sin, Let that give you cause to love him more and worship him in spirit and in truth. 
as a believer, a proper understanding of the atonement causes me to hate my sin more, but it also causes me to love Jesus more. It causes me to get on my knees every day and say, thank you. And I can't believe that your grace is deep enough for my sin. And your mercy is strong enough for my sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 57. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for the grace that you bestowed on us through Calvary. Perhaps there are those here who are new Christians who need a deeper understanding of their conversion. I know there are those here who have heard this message or messages like this many times. May they be driven to holiness and worship. God, I know there are those who are here who are unsaved. Some maybe who have prayed a prayer to get out of hell, not recognizing that the gospel is not simply fire insurance for eternity, but is a call to follow Christ. In this moment, would you give them a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone? God, we're asking that you would breathe life into their dead soul, that they would lay hold of you, that they would come to you alone and call out for forgiveness, that they may be reconciled to you and thus have their greatest need met.